Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, it's good to see you guys. My name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited. Uh, This morning, we are going to be wrapping up this teaching series that we've been in for the last several weeks. We're teaching through this really small book in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. And so today, we're going to be tackling chapter four. Um, But in case you've missed the story so far, I'm going to take just a couple of minutes and sort of recap it for us. All right. So so chapter one uh, of the book of Ruth begins in the midst of this great famine. And in the midst of this great famine in in Israel, this Israelite man and his wife, a woman named Naomi, they make this decision to move with their two sons from Israel, right? They're moving away from Israel. That's God's chosen special promised land for his people. Moving away from Israel and to the country of Moab. And, And Moab, as we've discussed in weeks past, is this godless mess of a country, Okay. Now, once they get to Moab, these sons of theirs wind up marrying Moabite women. And then within a decade, all three men in this family die. Okay. So it's this, it's this horrible tragedy. And we're left with this, this grieving Naomi, right? This former mother and now a widow. And in her despair, Naomi decides that she's going to head back to Israel. And accompanying her is one of her daughters-in-law. Her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, says, I'm going to go with you. And, and through this process of, of returning, what we find is that Ruth actually converts. She places her faith in Yahweh, and she chooses to follow Naomi and Naomi's God rather than sticking around back home in Moab and starting a new life for herself. And in doing so, Ruth shows Naomi unbelievable kindness. By going with her, essentially what she's doing is sacrificing her own good for the good of her mother-in-law. That's chapter one, okay? Now, in chapter two, we find that these widows, they've made it back to Israel, but now they're struggling to survive. In particular, they're incredibly hungry. And so Ruth, she goes out into the barley fields. It's it's the time for the barley harvest. And, And she goes out in the fields really just looking for like leftover bits of dropped barley grain so that they will have something something to eat. And while she's out there in the fields, the owner of this one particular field takes notice of her. She kind of she catches his, his eye and, and, and he desires the best for her. Really, she, she finds some pity in his eyes. And so he makes sure uh, several things. One, that she's kept safe while she's in the fields. He makes sure that she gets plenty of food. He even gives her extra. He shows her incredible kindness and incredible generosity. His name was Boaz. And what we learned about Boaz is that he's a really good man. Now we come to chapter three, and what we find in chapter three is this really odd, sort of awkward, kind of provocative uh, story where Naomi and Ruth are are like scheming together about how they can lock this guy down, right? (laughs) Um, Like Boaz is a man of character. Boaz is a godly Man, more than that, like he's single and he's got a job, right? So he hits all of the criteria they're looking for. And so Naomi, uh, Naomi, she's pushing pretty hard. She's like, Ruth, this guy's marriage 
material. And so here's the deal. She comes up with this super sketchy plan, uh, this really sketchy plan that involves Ruth sneaking into Boaz's bed in the middle of the night. Okay? Uh, And surprisingly, Ruth goes for it. She's like, yeah, okay. We'll we'll try this. And in doing so, she really lays it all on the line. She's risking everything here, like risking her reputation, risking her future, risking her pride, right? Potential humiliation here. She's risking it all. But she does this action and she asks Boaz, essentially she asks Boaz to marry her, right? She proposes. And his response is interesting. He says, I'd love to. I would love to marry you, but there's a problem. And the problem is this. According to the Jewish law, the law states that there is another man that has first right to marry you should he choose to. The problem is there's another guy in the way. This reminds me sort of of all of the great love stories, right? If you read books that are love stories, you've seen movies, certainly, right? Like the reality in good love stories is the guy doesn't just get the girl, right? They've got to fight for it. They've got to fight for her. There's always, there's some obstacle that they have to overcome or there's some great test or some conflict or something, right? They don't just get the girl. There's something in the way. And, and I resonate with that aspect of love stories like on a, at a deep personal level uh, because it's actually part of my own story. And so my, my biggest obstacle that I had to overcome in order to get the girl uh, was gaining the approval of her parents. And uh, yeah, so if you haven't met him, my wife's dad, uh, we'll say it this way, he was not shy about letting me know that I was going to need to prove myself worthy of his daughter. And uh, he spent years putting me through the ringer, and I have dozens of stories I could share. I'm only going to share with you one, because that's all we have time for. Um, but, but I can remember vividly the first time I, I went to her house. It was the first time ever we were going to go on a date. And I was picking her up for the date, and I'm 16 years old, okay, 16 years old. The guy meets me at the front door with a rifle in his hands. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And then he escorts me to his car makes me get in the passenger seat, and then drives me around the back country roads for the next hour, interrogating me the whole time. Uh, dozens and dozens of questions, just grilling me about like, what are your intentions with my daughter, right? It was terrifying. Uh, and really that's just the tip of, it's really just the tip of the iceberg. Anyway, it took years, and I mean that, it took years, but finally I won his approval sort of. <laughs> like, I kind of still barely have it. Um, I, ironically, ironically, and this is my favorite part of the story, uh, like, I think it was three years after we got married, um, on, on a Christmas morning, he gave me that rifle as a Christmas present, right? Here's a picture of it, right? Which, which is, is pretty fun. The really fun thing is that I have three daughters of my own, and so it's going to get a lot more use, right? Which, which is great. My obstacle to love was my father-in-law. Boaz's obstacle to love is this other dude, right? Who, according to the Jewish law, has first right to marry Ruth. Now, now Jarrell preached last week, and last week he began to touch on this Jewish law. It's, it's a law that we refer to as the law of the family redeemer, 
or depending on your translation in scripture, it might be called kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. This law essentially states that any time a family member was in trouble, it could be financial trouble, it could be otherwise, then their nearest capable relative was obligated to bail them out. The nearest capable relative. Okay, so, so here's the idea. Say you've got a cousin and your cousin gets injured. And as a result of their injury, they can't work. And because they can't work, they can't pay their mortgage. And so they're going to lose their home. Here's the deal. According to this law, if you are able to buy it, you have to do so. You have to buy their home in order to keep it in the family. And then the real kicker is one day you're going to have to give it back to them, either back to them or maybe back to their children. And in this way, the idea is this property, it stays as a part of the family, right? It stays as a part of their inheritance. Essentially, this was, this was a way of keeping the land and keeping the resources that God had very intentionally divided up among his people. It was a way of keeping that with those people. To say it differently, it was a way to ensure that 2% of the population doesn't end up hoarding 90% of the wealth and the resources. So this law is very un-American, right? But, but it's actually kind of beautiful, right? In this instance, Naomi and Ruth, as we said before, they're, they're starving, right? They're living day to day on the food they can pick up off the ground. But Naomi, she happens to own this plot of land. And she knows if she can sell it, she's going to make enough money that they can live on. So the reality is because she's selling it, it is the obligation of their nearest family member to purchase that land. Someone in the family's got to pick it up. However, in this instance... Purchasing this land also means you are inheriting these two women, okay? These women are coming with it. And the reality is one of these women is an old widow, right? An old widow who is sad and angry, and if you remember, prefers to be called bitterness, right? Uh, so you get the responsibility of caring for her until she dies someday. Have fun with that. The other woman is this young foreigner, a foreign widow, who in addition to caring for, you will be responsible to marry and to provide an heir for, meaning you will have to impregnate her. <laughs> and one day, if she has a child, that child will actually become the heir and owner of the land you bought from Naomi, and so you're going to have to give it back to that kid someday. Here's the idea. Purchasing this, this property is a big commitment, right? This is a big, this is not just some, some simple real estate deal. This is a life-altering, world-changing, costly commitment. And Boaz has said he's up for it. He's like, I'll do it. I'll do it. Out of care and love for Ruth and, and more than that, a desire to do what's right, a desire to live and follow God's laws. He's saying, I'm game. I'll take on this responsibility. But there's a closer relative in line. There's another man who has first rights if he wants it. And that is the tension that we are left with as chapter three ends, okay? There's competition here. <laughs> There's competition for Boaz. And this is a dramatic moment. This is an intense moment in the story because we don't know which way it's gonna go. 
What's going what's to happen here? To invite you to, to put yourself in the story for a moment, imagine yourself in Boaz's shoes. What would you do if you were faced with this kind of competition? This other person. Some of you are uh, your flight people. You know what I'm talking about? Your flight people. And so you're, you're like, I know exactly what I'd do. I'd take her to Vegas, right? Like we'd get out of town. We'd elope. It's, it's a done deal. Others of you aren't flight people. You're fight people. So you're like, no way. I don't run. There's only one solution here. It's simple. I'm going to kill him, right? Uh, thankfully, Boaz is uh, he's not quite that extreme, which is good news. He's described earlier in the text as a godly man, which I think at minimum means he's averse to murder. Uh, more than that, it means he cares about God's laws and instructions. So what we'll find from Boaz uh, is that rather than running, rather than flight, right? and rather than fight, Boaz is going to do what's right. He's going to follow God. I get that was a long intro, but I wanted to set up where chapter four starts. I'm going to invite Crystal out now. She's going to read chapter four for us. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Ruth chapter four. You're welcome to read along, but let's, let's listen to God's word together. Our scripture reading this morning is Ruth chapter four. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so, but if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought Naomi, from Naomi, all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in, 
I have tried to pronounce this word 15 times. Ephratha. Ephratha. Yeah, Ephratha. That's it. And be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offering, excuse me, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashan. Nashan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, we're so thankful uh, for this beautiful and powerful story. We're thankful for the gift of your word. God, we're thankful for your spirit that inspired these events and the writing and recording of them uh, thousands of years ago and pray that uh, by that same spirit, you would inspire our reading and our understanding of this ancient, sacred text this morning. God, I pray that the truth uh, would, would grip us, but not just in a way that informs our minds with interesting ideas. God, do, do that deeper work that only you do, that work of transforming our lives and our hearts and making us more uh, like Jesus. So we love you. God, again, we are thankful for this morning. Use it, Lord, for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there you go. That's the book of Ruth. We did it. Um, We did it. We did the whole thing. And and what I think is cool is that for some of you in the room, this is likely the first time you've ever uh, read all the way through, or more than that, studied all the way through an entire book of the Bible. And if that's the case for you, I just want to say that I think that that's awesome. I love it. I love that. Uh, Here at Antioch, we love the Bible, right? It's something that we believe in. It's something that we, we value highly. It's something that we care deeply about. And so, uh, so for you guys that are engaging in this, I want to say well done, right? You did it. Book of Ruth. So there's only 65 more books to go. So stick with it. Uh, eventually you'll, you'll get all of them. Ruth, Ruth chapter four, right? It, it's the story of this big obstacle for Boaz, and as you just heard, if you were listening to the text, you heard how it all played out, right? In short, it was a happy ending. <laughs> That's what happened. Boaz got the girl, 
Boaz won. He overcame the obstacle. And then the whole town celebrated and cheered as he and Ruth were married and they wind up having a baby. And so Naomi becomes a grandma. It's, it's so sweet, isn't it? It ends, it ends beautifully. And if you remember, this story didn't start off beautifully. It started off tragic and, and dark. It became hopeful and it ended in happiness. It's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. But I'd like to submit to you that there's more to this story than beauty. It is beautiful, but there's more to it than that. The reality is there's some really, really powerful dynamics at play here, but we, we kind of have to dig in a little bit in order to see and understand that. And so that's, that's my hope for this morning as we unpack chapter four. And we titled this teaching series well, we titled it Ruth, A Faithful Presence. And so as we round out the series today, as we complete it, I want to look at that specific idea, the idea of faithfulness. Because I think faithfulness shows up in this chapter in three really clear, three really distinct ways. In this chapter, I think we find a faithful person. I think we find a faithful community. And finally, we find a faithful God. And so there you go. Those are my three sermon points for you. This morning, let's, uh, let's take a look. Point one, the faithful person. You may have guessed it. The faithful person that uh, we're referring to this morning is this man, Boaz. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Boaz act faithfully in this story. If you recall back to, to chapter two, we found that he operated his business with extreme faithfulness, with, with generosity to the poor. He was a man who went above and beyond to show care for, the, for foreigners and for widows, right? He's a good dude. He is faithful to God and to those around him. This chapter highlights his faithfulness once again, but it does it in a really interesting way. This chapter highlights Boaz's faithfulness by contrast. It holds him up against a man that doesn't show faithfulness in order to reveal, to a greater extent, Boaz's true faithfulness. So let me show you what I'm talking about. It's, it's in verse 1 that we first meet the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer, right? Boaz's competition. He shows up for the first time. And... Uh, this guy's the closer relative to Naomi. And as he's walking by, Boaz says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Okay? Now, there's something kind of funny, kind of interesting, that happens in the, the original text at this moment. That happens in the, in the Hebrew. Okay? And, and I want to unpack it because I think it's significant. What we have rendered as the word friend in our English translations, uh, is translated here as a different word. In Hebrew, it's pronounced poloni almoni, okay? Poloni almoni, uh, which, does anybody happen to know what that means? <laughs> no? Uh, here's the deal. That word means absolutely nothing. That is a word without meaning. It is a completely nonsensical, rhyming phrase. It doesn't mean anything. It just sounds kind of funny, right? And so for some reason in English, we've decided to translate this as the word friend. 
I think just because that makes Boaz sound a little bit nicer, <laughs> like it's sort of cordial and uh, polite, he doesn't call him friend. He calls him Poloni Almoni. And so um, scholars would say the best way we could actually translate this in English would be to, to say um, Mr. So-and-so. That's how he's referring to him, Mr. So-and-so. So what's Boaz saying? He said, hey, so-and-so, come over here and sit down. Now, now, what's significant about this is, remember, this guy is one of Boaz's family members. Boaz certainly knows his name. He knows him well, in fact, and yet he doesn't call him by his name. He calls him so-and-so. Now, that's a super weird detail, right? Like, why am I explaining this? What's the point? The point is this. The guy is not given a name. He's not given a name. Now let me invite you to think for a moment. In a culture where family and name means everything. More than that, in a book, in Ruth, where like every single name that we've come across has been deeply loaded with meaning that has defined these characters and has shaped their life. Here's the question. What do you think the author is suggesting about this guy by refusing to name him? He's nobody. He's nobody. That's a powerful statement about this man, but it's a statement that's further clarified by his actions, okay? And uh, so Mr. So-and-so shows up at the city gate and he, he expresses interest in this real estate deal. He's like, yeah, that sounds great. I'll buy that land. That could be profitable for me until he realizes that the investment isn't actually going to pay off in the end. And then he says, I can't do that. <laughs> Sorry, never mind. Uh, I, can't, I can't redeem that. I can't redeem these women. If I do, it's going to endanger my estate, right? It's going to hinder my own inheritance. That's the language that he uses. The reality is he wanted the land, sure. But the responsibility of caring for these widows and then possibly having to raise one of their children and all of the cost associated with that, what's he say? I'm out, right? No, thank you. I cannot do that. See, Mr. So-and-so counts the cost of true faithfulness. So we could also define as true religion, as, as James refers to it, counts the cost of caring for orphans and widows and realizes it's not worth the investment. It is not worth the investment. Somebody else care for them. You do it, Boaz, right? Now, interestingly, this is not the first time in the biblical narratives that we've seen something very similar to this happen, where we have a man who's faced with the opportunity to do what's right, particularly do what's right for a widow, but then instead turns his back. And you see, for, for the, the Jewish audience who first read this book, right? The original audience here, people who would have grown up steeped in the Old Testament story, steeped in the, the, the patriarchal narratives, right? This, this moment in, in Ruth would have instantly brought to their mind another story from biblical history, a story that had happened generations before, and that is the story of Judah and Tamar, okay? This is a story that, that shows up in Genesis chapter 38. It is... Um, it's a crazy story. I can't get into all the details. You should read that chapter on your own, though. 
I don't like to talk about it because it's embarrassing. Um, but, but this is a story that deals with these same particular ethics, these same particular laws that they're dealing with at this moment in Ruth, the, the laws of the family redeemer and leverate marriage. Okay? Now here's the gist of the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah has three sons, okay? And he goes to, to try to find a wife for his oldest son, and he finds this woman named Tamar. And so he has Tamar marry his oldest son, but then shortly after that, uh, his son dies. And in dying, he leaves Tamar also without a child, and so she has no, no security in their culture. And so then, according to, again, these Jewish laws and ethics, it became the duty of the next nearest relative to care for Tamar. And so Judah marries her to his second son to make sure that she could be provided for and cared for, and more importantly, given a child. Now, this second son was not a good dude, and he used her. In reality, he was very he was he was happy to he was happy to sleep with her, but he took clear precautions to make sure that he did not get her pregnant. <laughs> okay, he wanted the, the the benefits, but he shirked the responsibilities, and then he too died once again, leaving her widowed and without child. Widowed and without child, not unlike Ruth and Naomi. Right? The parallels between these, these two stories are, are pretty, pretty uncanny. Now, e eventually, Tamar does wind up having a baby. She actually has twins, okay? But, but the reality is she didn't have this baby because some godly person, some godly man stepped in and, and stepped up and did what was right. Rather, she had the baby because she took the initiative and she did some creative problem-solving We'll call it that. Uh, in reality, um, she disguised herself as a prostitute and then got her former father-in-law to impregnate her, not knowing who she was, which is gross. Um, but she has this baby, and she names the baby Perez. Perez. Does that sound familiar? It should because Perez is the name that's listed as the founder of the genealogy in verse 18. As we come to the end of the book of Ruth, Perez is the name that starts the list. He's in this book. So is that all just coincidence? No, it's not coincidence. The author is doing something very intentional here. The author is drawing our minds all the way back to this story of old, all the way back to this dark jacked up, broken story of unfaithfulness, the story of mess. And what is the author saying? Mr. So-and-so, he's no different. All along, people have been acting like this. All along, people have been using and misusing people and their power. All along, people have been choosing to do what's convenient instead of doing what's faithful. But you know who stands in stark contrast to this lineage of unfaithfulness? Boaz. Boaz. Boaz is the kind of person that steps in and steps up when there's a need. He's the kind of person that, that, that will serve and that will give because people are greater than prophets, 
right? He's doing more than what is expected. He's caring for widows. He's feeding the hungry. He's loving the least of these. He's a faithful person. Do you have margin in your life to serve and to give and to care even when it's costly? Or I could could ask it this way. Is your faithfulness actually costing you anything? Time, energy, money. Seldom, seldom is the faithfulness that God calls us to convenient. And I just wonder, like, how often do we miss it? How often do we miss faithfulness because it's just not really a good time right now? Secondly, uh, we have a clear picture in this chapter of the faithful community. I want to share with you what was for me the most impactful quote that I read in my studying of Ruth over the last couple of months. It's from the theologian Catherine Dube Sakenfeld. And, and she's referring to, to this moment, the, the end of Ruth chapter four. She's referring to this moment in Bethlehem, the sort of snapshot that we give of this community. This is, this is her quote. She says, this portrait of the community may be regarded as a microcosm of the peaceable kingdom envisioned by the prophetic tradition. It is a human community in which the marginalized person has dared to insist upon full participation, in which the one in the center has reached out beyond societal norms to include the marginalized. It is a community in which children are celebrated and the elderly are attentively cared for. It is a community in which all are fed, a community in which joy is the dominant note. Thus, the story offers to its readers a memory of the future, a vision of our future hope couched in the form of a story from the past. What is she saying? She's saying that this picture of Bethlehem in this moment, in this moment where everyone is cared for, young and old, right? Where nobody is left hungry or lonely and where outsiders are brought into the middle because people that are in the middle are willing to make space for them. She's saying this moment looks a lot like the kingdom that God intended. This looks a lot like the kingdom that Jesus preached about. In this moment, Bethlehem is shining. It's shining like a light in the darkness, right? Like like a city on, on a hill. They are embodying the values of heaven. In this one moment, humanity is actually living like it was designed to. Life is flourishing and it's beautiful. For a moment, Our future hope, right? Heaven is seen in this story from the past. Um, 
we've often talked about here at Antioch, how we are called to live as ambassadors from the future, right? Pastor Pete says that a lot. We're called to live as ambassadors from the future, which always sounds, <laughs> uh, it always sounds a little bit like a science fiction cult to me, like this sort of, huh? Um, but this is, this is exactly what we mean by that language. That we are called to be a community of people who are living out the values of heaven here and now. What if Antioch was known as such a place? As, as, as a, a microcosm of the peaceable kingdom, right? What if we were known for our love and inclusion of the outsider, the, the, the foreigner, the alien, the immigrant? What if we were known as a place where nobody is ever lonely and nobody is hungry and nobody is devalued because of their age or their race or their gender or their orientation or their history, right? A place where heaven, heaven has drawn so near to earth that we can taste it and it tastes In one sense, we are called to be faithful persons, yes. And also, we are called to be the faithful community. Finally, uh, let's look at the faithful God of Ruth chapter four. Yeah, here in, in chapter four, interestingly, for only the second time in the entire book, we find God directly intervening into human circumstances. Only the second time in the book, God actually shows up and, and is credited for intentionally doing something. We see it in verse 13. It says, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and when he made love to her, here it is, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. We have a God who is faithful. We have a God who is faithful to meet us in our brokenness and in our need. He's faithful to meet us in our brokenness and in our greatest needs. What I love is that the last picture that we see in the book of Ruth as it's coming to a close is, is this snapshot of the renewed and restored Naomi. This destitute, uh, devastated widow who had lost it all, who had essentially given up on life and, and, and changed her name to bitterness. Right? She's restored. And this last picture is beautiful, right? So she's, she's restored, she's transformed. All of a sudden, she becomes this doting, adoring grandma. And she's no longer empty, but rather she's finally caring for this sweet baby in her arms as, as all of the ladies of the town surround her and celebrate her blessed life. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Naomi's character arc, right? Naomi's narrative 
her story comes to this absolutely beautiful resolution. One in which God meets her and God fills her. He saves her. God is faithful to her. But the truth is we can't stop there. Because God's actions of faithfulness in this moment, in meeting Naomi's needs, he he doesn't, this baby is not just a solution for her brokenness. In reality, God was doing something much greater. And so so I think of God's uh, faithfulness in this moment, kind of like when you drop a pebble in, in a pond, right? And what do you see? You see the, the, the ripples spread out. God's faithfulness here is like the ripples in a pond. His, his goodness starts there, but it spreads out, right? But I'm not talking about spreading out across a pond. I'm talking about spreading out across human history. Look at this. If we zoom out one ripple, right? If we zoom out one ring and we look at what God's doing, what we'll remember uh, what was the setting for the book of Ruth. In fact, if you flip back to the very first words of the book, Ruth chapter one, verse one, it says this, in the days when the judges ruled. And when we unpacked that together in week one, we mentioned that this was the darkest and most brutal time in the history of the nation of Israel. It was a time that was summarized in the concluding verse of the book of Judges, the book that's right before Ruth in the Bible. And this time was summarized like this. It said, this was a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a mess, okay? Now that is where the book of Ruth began. Those are the very first words in the book, right? Now, look with me. What are the very last words in the book of Ruth? Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David. David. That's a name that should almost give us goosebumps in this moment. Would have been a shocking name for these original readers to read because, wait, wait, David? What you're talking about, about David? David, the the greatest king that the nation of Israel would ever know. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the king that would lead this nation back into, into proper worship and obedience and faithfulness. David, do you see the power of this? God wasn't only meeting Naomi's needs. God was meeting the needs of this entire nation in a season when there was no king, God was bringing the king. And Naomi and Ruth, right? Boaz and Obed, turns out they're his great-grandparents. How cool is that? That is a faithful God. That is a faithful God. But in truth, we can't stop there either because there's one final ripple of God's faithfulness that we have to look at because from this line of David would one day come another king, a king who would not merely meet the needs of Israel, but a king who would meet the needs of all humanity. 
a king who would also come into the world as a baby born in Bethlehem. A king who would also one day feed the hungry and comfort the grieving and totally confound the the traditional categories of what is center and what is margin. This king would also face a great obstacle in pursuit of love, but this obstacle wasn't a closer relative. This obstacle was a cross. A cross where he went willingly. Because even though it would cost him his life, he viewed us as a worthy investment. Friends, Jesus. Jesus lived. He died. He rose. He ascended and is now reigning. Amen. That we might be saved that we might be redeemed, that we might be brought into his forever family as recipients of his love. That we could live as these these kingdom citizens of the future in the here and now. That we might be faithful people in a faithful community because of God's great faithfulness to us. And so there's the story of Ruth. That's Ruth. It's a story that that, that points our eyes to the faithful presence of God in a moment but also points our eyes to the faithful presence of God throughout history, a faithfulness that changed the world, right? And is still changing us. It's a faithfulness that we get to celebrate. It's a God that we get to worship. It's a God that we get to remember as we come to the table and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, remembering uh, Jesus' faithfulness to us, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, that we could be his. Friends, this is the faithful God that we worship. And so I'll, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to leave you, though, with uh, some final words. And um, if you would, c- can we stand together for a moment, actually? And... And I'm going to share with you these, these final words. These are the words that, if, if you look back in your text, these are the, the words that the women of the town shared with Naomi. Okay? I want to share them with you now. <laughs> and I want you to receive them as good news and words for you. The women of the town said, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, once again, uh, we are so thankful uh, for this 
beautiful, but more than beautiful, this powerful story of redemption and love and faithfulness that is the book of Ruth. And um, man, my heart is moved this morning with this picture of your unending faithfulness through the ages and how you could use the birth of a baby to bring about a king that would bring about the ultimate king that would be our savior. Wow. You are a good God and um, your faithfulness, your love uh, is not lost on us. God, I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds uh, to receive it this morning, to feel it, to know it, to believe it. God, thank you that in your grace, you provided a way for us to be drawn into life with you. Jesus, thank you for being the way, the truth and the life. You are a king, and we celebrate and worship this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.